Loved, cherished, comforted. Welcome to the podcast ministry of Our Resolute Hope, where you will find grace, not just a concept or a doctrine of grace, but a person, a person whose name is Jesus, a person who brings hope, a determined, resolute hope that can sustain you and empower you to live courageously in this fallen world. Join us now as we learn more about Jesus, our Savior, our Lord, and our life. Dear ones, thank you today for joining us on this episode of the podcast for Our Resolute Hope. John Russin here, the host, my dear friend, Pastor Frank Friedman, on the other end, 1,500 miles away. How are you, my friend? Hey, John, good to hear your voice. I know. It's been a few weeks since we've chatted, and we both have had uh, a number of different medical things happen, and so it's nice to get back in the saddle. It truly is. Dear friends, if you've joined us for the past few weeks, Frank and I have been talking about suffering. And we began with a few comments about suffering in general, but then we spent several weeks doing a rather deep dive into the suffering of our Savior, how it shaped him, how it fitted him perfectly to be our Messiah and our sympathetic high priest. But Frank, I want to switch gears this week and begin to talk about some other folks in Scripture whose lives and ministries have been greatly impacted by the things they've suffered. And I want to begin with Paul. And so, as you know, when Paul wrote his second letter to the Corinthians, he was probably the most open and intimate and vulnerable he was with any of his other letters. He opened his heart. So, Frank, you've often said that it's kind of your favorite epistle. Could you unpack that and what you see in that epistle and why it was so meaningful to you? Well, John, that's a really important question that strikes a passionate chord in my heart. Years ago, I got to study that book and teach through it. And in chapter six, Paul makes an amazingly insightful statement. He says, in this epistle, I have opened my heart wide unto you. And so this is a very special letter. It's it's not like a lot of the other letters where Paul was dealing with doctrinal issues, divisions, conflict, battles with legalism. This is a personal letter, heart to heart, if you will, um, where Paul shares what the Christian life was like for him. And chapter four is probably the apex of it. And then chapter one really introduces what he discusses in greater detail in chapter four. But he starts right off the bat with a letter to these people saying, listen, I don't want you to be ignorant of my circumstances. I am despairing of life. And John, that is so huge. Can you imagine a pastor getting up today and telling his congregation, I'm despairing of life. And in this letter, I'm going to tell you why. Years ago, John, I was having a very rough couple of months with our daughter with her rare disease when she was in ICU. And one Sunday morning, I stood up and I said, look, I've prepared something, but I just don't have a lot left in terms of the battery power in my soul. 
And so we're going to teach it today, but, and I'll never forget, a woman came up to me and she said, you ruined my worship. And I said, what do you mean? And she said, well, if you're not achieving victory, then how am I ever going to? And I thought, boy, what a tragic misunderstanding of what the Christian life is all about. And Paul, that's what this letter is all about. He says, death comes at us every day. That's what the Christian life is like. And it squeezes, there's a purpose to it. It squeezes the life of Christ out of us so that the world can see him and we experience him, but we get to express him to others. They get to see what we experience. And Paul said, that's why we don't quit. We we get discouraged, but we're never in despair. We get persecuted, but we don't get cast down. We get knocked down, but we never get knocked out. We don't quit. We don't quit. We don't quit. And even in chapter one, when he lowers that boom and says, I'm despairing of life, he then quickly adds, John, then I brought to my mind that God raises the dead. And he wasn't talking about the resurrection from the grave. He was talking about the resurrection from the death we encounter every day. And that sets the stage for the rest of the letter. You know, John, when I ponder that, what an honest appraisal of the Christian life. Wake up every day acknowledging death is going to come at me today. There's going to be loss, hurt, frustration, betrayal, deception around every corner. But it's not the end of the story because all that death is going to do is force the life out of you. And as I just reflect on that, I remember, gosh, it was 30, 40 years ago that a guy named Dawson Trotman who was the founder of the Navigators, drowned up at Scroon Lake. And one of the women who was in attendance ran to the cabin of his wife. His, her name was Lila. And she pounded on the door frantically. And Lila opened the door. And the woman screamed, Oh, Lila, I'm so sorry. Dawson is dead. He just drowned. And John instantly, that woman, quoted from the Psalms, our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. You don't function like that woman. You don't function like the Apostle Paul in a vacuum. You got there somehow. And I would like to say I'm there, John, but I'm not. I'm on the journey. But it does make you question how do people get there? Yeah. That's a question worth asking and yeah. worth answering, yeah. <laughs> attempting well, to answer. <laughs> well, we don't have to wreck our brains, my friend, because looking at Paul, Scripture is not silent about how Paul got there. Mm -hmm. So what I'd like to do, my friend, over the next uh, several weeks as we talk about Paul is kind of put our discussion of 2 Corinthians on hold for a while. And let's spend some time talking about how Paul got there. Mm. So I want to begin with a story we all know very well from Acts chapter 9. Paul, Saul, the murderous Pharisee, has got a fistful of letters from the high priest. 
in Jerusalem, and he's on his way to Damascus to arrest Christians. Now, the thing that struck me first about this is that Damascus is 170 miles from Jerusalem, Frank. So Mm. what impressed me is that this is not just a passive activity. This is a campaign. Mm. And Paul's at the point. He's like the vanguard of this. So he's on his way to Damascus. Of course, we know what happens. A light appears. Paul gets knocked to the ground. And he has a close encounter of the Jesus kind. <laughs> you know, so Frank, summarize that encounter right there with the apostle and Jesus. You know, what happened? Well, of course, it's a revelation of Jesus. He unveils himself to Paul to tell him who he really is. And he says, why do you persecute me? Which is a fascinating thought because Paul wasn't persecuting Jesus. He was persecuting the followers of Jesus. But what a revelation that is, John. We are so in union with Christ that when people persecute us, they're really not. They're persecuting the Christ in us. But what a testimony. They recognize Christ is in us. So we are presenting a very tangible expression of Christ to the world. This is not a religion that we are involved in. It's a relationship. It's a union with God. And God gets to express himself through us. And so when Jesus tells him, you're persecuting me, and I want to know why. And he, Paul says, well, who are you? (laughs) And that's when he gets the revelation. I'm the Lord Jesus who you persecute. Wow. And boy, I can only imagine Paul's mind on fast forward, well, maybe fast rewind back to the events in Jerusalem not long before. Yeah, not long before. Stephen and the Lord. Yeah. And so uh, I was out cycling one day, Frank, and Father and I were just chatting about preparing for this particular episode of the podcast. And of course, I thought I was going to dive right into 2 Corinthians and he said, no, 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 you need to go a little deeper and a little further back in time first. So he began to talk to me about Acts chapter 9. And these are the thoughts that came into my head of what Paul might have been thinking about. Oh, my goodness. The rumors about his resurrection were true. Mm. Jesus really was the Messiah. Mm. And here I am terrorizing them, imprisoning them killing them. And Mm. in 60 seconds, Frank, everything this Pharisee of Pharisees lived for, everything he worked for, everything he planned for his entire life, everything was gone Mm. in 60 seconds. So Father showed me that this was not just a happy time. This was a life changing trauma for Saul Mm. because his life as he knew it Frank Mm. was over absolutely Mm. over he would have lost his family because remember he was the son of a Pharisee he would have been Mm. estranged from all of his buds and his other Pharisees in training he would be estranged from his teacher Gamaliel all that was gone so he's kind Mm. of in limbo I have no past now I don't know what's coming next. 
Mm. And by the way, I'm totally blind. And somebody Mm. has to take my hand and lead me into Damascus. My goodness, Frank, how many times in the counseling circumstance have you met with people whose entire lives have been shattered in a moment like this? Mm. My goodness, John. While you were talking, I couldn't help but think of Nicodemus, you know, all that he had done and all that he was. And then to be told by the Lord, you're not in the kingdom. You need to be born again. And obviously he was not talking about a physical birth, but a brand new beginning. And that's what Nicodemus questioned. You mean go back in the womb? Do you mean everything I've done counts nothing? And Jesus simply repeated the statement. Yeah, you've got to start over. And boy, John, to look at your life and see it go up in smoke, it feels like a death. That's what makes, like you say, in the counseling arena, there's so much loss that brings people into that arena because they wouldn't come otherwise. They're desperate. And the one thing we lead them to is that God is the author of a resurrection. Whatever loss there can be gain, uh, whatever sorrow and grief, there can be joy and peace. And whatever death, there can be resurrection. He's the God of a new beginning. And Paul is about to experience that. And I love the fact that I think God knew exactly what this man needed. John, I think it's very insightful you pulled that out, that he was blind. He was brilliant. He was intellectual. He was knowledge-oriented. He was a Greek, and that Greek culture valued knowledge, and knowledge led to sight. I can see this world. I can understand how it works. And God took everything away. He couldn't even see. He was totally helpless, and that meant he was totally prepared to receive for maybe the first time in his life. Maybe so. I was looking at that passage again more closely, Frank. And in addition to the the point about him being blind and how that symbolically represented how he lived his life before he met Jesus, it really impacted me that he chose to take no food or water for three days. Hmm. And so my mind runs to Esther 4. And you know the story. Yeah. Uh, everything's lining up for all the Jews to be killed. And Esther basically goes to see her husband, the king, uninvited. And she called for all the nation of Israel to pray and fast with her, no food or water for three days. So Paul knew this. And so mm. just as when Esther walked into the king and says, well, if I perish, I perish. Paul didn't know whether his next step would lead him to life or death. Mm. And so he was serious. He realized his whole life was upside down. And he took this time, these three days before Ananias showed up to lay hands on him, to devote himself desperately in turmoil, screaming, what is going on here? 
devoting himself to hear what God had to say. Part of me that says it's kind of sad that we have to be knocked down like this before God can get our attention. But sometimes, Frank, that's the unfortunate truth, not only for Paul, but for all of us. You know, John, you know, ever since the Garden of Eden, we've all lived under the lie that we shall be as God. And God means self-sufficiency. And there's a sense in all of us that faith in God is born out of need. And most of us, I believe, I really do, pay lip service to Genesis 3. And we think that was something for Adam and Eve and, and don't recognize ourselves until we lose all of those other than God things that we used in life to make us significant, provide us value and worth. And when they're stripped away, we find that we've got nothing but God. And it's in that moment that we find him in a way we never knew him and find that really those things were a distraction from the one who wants to be our everything. Yeah. You know, C.S. Lewis said that the pain of life is God's megaphone. And we just listen better in the moments of loss and hurt and sorrow. I would prefer to say that the trials are our hearing aid because God always speaks. It's just that we don't listen. Yeah. But uh, until we're primed to listen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, we're all struggling with that unfortunate truth. But the thing that encouraged me as I was talking with father about this on my ride, you know, the first 20 or 30 miles, we were talking about what Paul experienced, but mm -hmm. on the way home, from that ride. I'm pedaling along. And I said, but you know, Father, there's more that happened after Paul. And so Father began to unpack for me how he structured the restoration of Paul. And I know you and I are mm. just uh, threads away from finishing our commentary on Galatians. And chapter six, the final one, really brings the whole thing to a head when it says, hey, look now, you got to work together to restore and that word mm -hmm. restore means to, to act like a surgeon, to, to carefully knit broken bones together. So this is what father did to Paul, Saul, because he wanted him to heal, not mm -hmm. to scar, not to scar. Mm -hmm. So as I'm thinking about this, three different things father did to restore Paul. And I think not only are the examples of how Paul got to be where he was, and was able to write 2 Corinthians, but how we need to approach people who Father places in our path who are just in the devastating trenches of life. Mm. And so here's the first one, my friend. Mm -hmm. It's time. It took Paul time to process all the Lord was teaching him. Basically, he had to unlearn mm. 1,500 years of incorrect understanding from scripture and the traditions of the fathers, so to speak. Mm. The traditions of the elders, which he knew both very well, he had to unlearn that. And so that was traumatic. And so it took time. And so mm. we need to understand first that when we're dealing with hurting people or we're hurting ourselves, 
we need to give ourselves the grace of having some time to sort of put some things back together again and let Father begin to work. And, you know, that's hard, Frank, as you know, because when mm -hmm. someone close to you suddenly starts to suffer, it's painful in a different way to watch them suffer. Mm -hmm. It truly is. And so time, I think, is the first thing we have to allow. Mm -hmm. So what are your thoughts on that? Oh, John, I've seen this personally, experienced it personally. I find sometimes I think the church is almost embarrassed by hurting people that, you know, we represent God. And, and if we're struggling, then it doesn't look like we have a God who cares or a God who fights on our behalf. I'll never forget, I went into an ICU ward once. There's a young lady in our church there, and she was going to die, single mother, leaving four kids. It was tragic. And as I went into the ICU ward, one of the ladies of the church was coming out of the ICU, and she had tears streaming down her cheeks. And the woman who was waiting to take her turn and go in, and I heard it with my own ears, quickly exhorted this woman in very strong terms, stop those tears. That doesn't manifest victory. And I, of course, dealt with it on both parties, the freedom to grieve, the freedom to hurt, and then the other one to not present a facade, but to be real and honest. But John, that's a classic of the fact that we almost get embarrassed by people who hurt. And we really ought to take a cue from our physical body. When somebody breaks a bone, we give them time for that bone to heal. When someone has a broken soul, why don't we give them the same courtesy? It's almost like we want them fixed immediately, oh, yeah. or it's it's going to be a bad testimony to God. And it, it's not. God doesn't necessarily promise victory over our circumstances. He promises victory in the midst of them because he will strengthen us and encourage us and comfort us, like the psalmist said, as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. He doesn't say we climb out of it, we walk through it. But with him, that's the key. Yeah. And the world will marvel as they watch us at what we've gone through and emerge with confidence and faith and hope and joy. Yes, indeed. There's another part of that restoration process that Father revealed to me from both Acts 9 and Acts 13. And that is uh, not only did Father give Paul time, but he gave him some sound fellowship too. Mm. When you read about what went on there in Antioch, he's now surrounded by a, a group of teachers and prophets. And, and Paul was learning to teach. All these guys are probably pouring into him helping him process what happened, mm. understand the new covenant of grace in place of the old covenant of law. And the thought that came into my mind, Frank, was from Exodus 17, when Joshua was busy fighting the Amalekites. And as Moses lifts up his arms, Joshua wins. But when Moses' arms get tired and his arms start to sink, 
Joshua starts losing. And so what do these sound fellows do? Aaron and her come up to Moses. They give him a rock to sit on and they hold up his arms. And father said, this is what these folks in Antioch did mm. for Paul. And so Frank, the second thing, not only time, because of course, if you, if you just leave time, you can wind up with a horrible scar and never move your broken arm again, but you mm. need to have proper support, proper mm. encouragement. And so I can't discount the value of sound fellowship from like-minded believers as we're walking through this journey. Would you agree? Oh, John, I think you've hit a real problem in the grace community, and that is that I meet a lot of people who believe that because they have such a wonderful relationship with Christ, they don't need anyone or anything else. They interpret Colossians 1, you know, Christ in me. It is Christ in you, yes, but it's a plural you, Christ in you all. We are part of a body, and that means that we need each other to supply to each other as various members of this same body. We are not Lone Rangers. We cannot be successful as Lone Rangers. Ecclesiastes 4, John, is one of the clearest passages in all of Scripture. Two are better than one. When one is weak, the other can be strong. When one falls down, the other can pick them up. We need each other. Paul got that from the very beginning. And John, let's tie this back in to where we started today. He lost everything, but he gained a community. Yes. And that community loved him and was kind to him and comforted him. And I believe that was a tremendous lesson that Paul never forgot because at the end of his life, and you got to think about this, John, after having walked with Christ so intimately, he's in a prison. And what does he do? He calls for his friends to be with him. Yeah. Uh, huge. It is indeed. And you know, Frank, you said the word community, and that's something that Father gave Paul, as you said. But there's also a deeper part of that, not only a community, but what Father impressed upon me was positive affirmation and support. And that came out in my mind in Acts 9, when Paul goes to Jerusalem to see the apostles, and he gets there, and Frank, they're afraid of him. Yeah, And so who steps up to vouch for Paul? Barnabas. Cool name, mm. my friend. It means the son <laughs> of encouragement. Barnabas stood with Paul. He vouched for him. He stuck with him. He believed in him, said, you got this, buddy. I have seen the fruit in your life and you are on track in the kingdom. And so how mm. exciting to see that affirmation. And Frank, you mentioned community. When you see Paul there, he says in Acts that he talks to uh, the Jews. He wrestled with the Jews, and they were formerly his brothers. Mm. But those he formerly called enemies, he now called his brethren. So his former friends had become his enemies. His former enemies had become his friends. And for the first time in his life, he is able to have life from death and joy through 
suffering. And what a rocky path, my friend, but it's really hard to argue with the fruit at the end. Wrap us up with that thought. Oh, John, you know, it's funny. He wouldn't have had that community were it not for the courage of Barnabas. Can you imagine being that guy? And the Lord says, hey, buddy, I want you to go lay hands on this Oh, and an, oh, yeah, Ananias. Oh, oh, yeah, Ananias. Stiff, yeah, Ananias. Stiff. Yeah, And he's like, Lord, that guy kills Christians. <laughs> yeah. But and he so, was obedient, laid his hands. Yeah. And yeah. Paul saw, and life was different. Listen to your reference to Ananias, and we, we could spend a long time talking about him and what went through his mind. And then we look at Barnabas, and here you see two people. Ananias and Barnabas, who individually make huge contributions to the life of Paul. Mm. And so may we never discount mm -hmm. a single word we might say as a single person to anyone in need. Mm -hmm. Wow. Amen. Well, my friends, thank you for joining us today on the podcast. It's been a really challenging but fun time to unpack a little bit of the Apostle Paul's history and the suffering he endured that equipped him to write epistles like 2 Corinthians. So we're grateful you've joined us. If Father has ministered to you today, we invite you to check out our website. You'll find us at OurResoluteHope.com. Lots of resources there growing every day that will help you focus on the incredible truth of Jesus Christ as your very life. We invite you as always to follow us on social media platforms. You'll find us on Facebook, Instagram, uh, on our YouTube channel. Like and subscribe, ring that bell so that you won't miss any new installments. And there is a bunch of new ones coming out soon on Psalms. And as always, we close with the same reminder from Hebrews chapter six, reminding you that we have a hope a hope that's an anchor for our souls. So today and always, choose that hope. Choose Jesus. Thanks for listening. We trust that you've seen Jesus today. And you know that no matter what you're facing, He offers you Himself, His own life. He wants to live His life with you, in you, and through you as you trust Him and walk by faith in this troubled world. You've been listening to Our Resolute Hope Podcast. For more information, find us online at OurResoluteHope.com and check out our social media channels under the name Our Resolute Hope.